G'day everyone, my name's Ed Kemp and welcome back to the Wide Open Road podcast series, a podcast series providing insights from retired professional athletes to help current professional athletes transition to life after sport. In this episode we feature Michelle Mitchell OAM, one of Australia's finest female hockey players and a key member of arguably Australia's most successful sports team in history, the Hockey Ruse, for a decade from the early 1990s. Michelle played 148 games for Australia and won gold medals at the 1996 Atlanta Olympics and the 1998 Commonwealth Games. She also won gold at the World Cup and was in four Champions Trophy title sides. In 1997, she was awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia. After retiring through injury just before the 2000 Olympic Games in Sydney, Michelle coached around the world and has subsequently forged a career in the education sectors and elite environments, specifically focusing on athlete welfare and development. Michelle was player welfare and development manager for the Gold Coast Suns AFL Football Club and is currently surfing Australia's athlete wellbeing and engagement manager. Michelle has a passion for helping athletes maximise opportunities whilst playing their sport and also maintaining wellbeing for better performance to help them transition to life after sport. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michelle. Michelle, it's great to speak with you this afternoon and thanks very much for your time. How do you think the experiences from your own sporting journey have helped you inform and mentor athletes that you've worked with over the past two decades? Oh, well, certainly, I guess coming from an athlete from a very young age, I sort of started my more professional career at age 16. I think I played my first international uh, day before my 17th birthday and I was very fortunate enough to really spend most of my career under the guidance of Rick Charlesworth from inception to end. So those key learnings and things that I was able to take um, from my sport were really transferable. Um, I guess what I call the real world and some of those skills that were instilled in me, some of them were quite brutal, um, but that, I guess, the brutality that we call of the sport, you know, those setbacks and pushing beyond your limits and, and getting through injury is probably was a really good, um, I guess, framework to set me up for transitioning and, and something I've been able to um, share with the athletes, I guess, the similarities between being a, an athlete and then transitioning out into um, the athlete wellbeing world where I am at the moment is, as an athlete, I always tried to, I guess, push myself to beyond my capabilities. And I think Rick was probably instilled that in me and, and probably helped me recognise um, that I had the capabilities of doing that. So now when I work with athletes, um, whether it's, out of the water or off the field or off the pitch, um, I always try to challenge them in areas um, with their career that they can actually go beyond um, their capabilities within their career, education, um, or what they choose to do away from their sport. And if you think about the the lessons that, that Rick Charlesworth taught you, and I mean, clearly you guys were incredibly successful. In fact, you'd argue that you were the most successful Australian sporting team ever through the through the 90s and into the early 2000s. What were the sort of the, the takeaways that you had when it came to walking out of sport uh, and walking into, uh, you know, the next phase of your life? Because you talked about, you know, pushing beyond your capabilities. And I'm assuming from your own personal point of view and also for the athletes that you've worked with that it's actually quite confronting to move away from a sport that you've known pretty much all your life to then suddenly be thrust into the real world. And 
I'm assuming, you know, pushing beyond your capabilities and getting out of your comfort zone would have been a really key part of that learning journey as you move to life after sport. Oh, yeah, there's lots of pieces in that. And I guess I think some of the things that Rick really pushed were, you know, taking responsibility for your own game and obviously pushing those capabilities. Um, I was only telling someone a story the other day um, actually, I was talking to B. Durbridge at Surfing, who's a former uh, world surfer, and I was telling him how one of the training sessions when I first met Rick, he put a weight belt on me to train in and a few of the other girls. Um, and it was really about a message about saying, well, you, you're carrying a bit of weight and, and you're, not, um, you're not being able to be your best with carrying that weight. And, and his reaction was like, wow, that's pretty brutal but there was a lot of key learnings in that because I actually think if he hadn't done that it probably I don't think I would have got the key learning as much as I would have if he, he just had a verbally said it so that's where he would he would go to places and and challenge you around things um, around the physicality side and capabilities to do that so I, I had that take responsibility. I had that pushing my own limits. However, um, I was the youngest of four children. And then when you enter sport, as the youngest child, I had three siblings that did a lot for me. So when I got to the AAS at the age of 18 and entered into the sport, we got told when to turn up, when to train, when to go to physio, when to go to surgery. Uh, if we heard our knee on the Saturday, we were booked in on the Sunday for surgery. We were fast-tracked to do everything. So actually, when I, um, I was forced retirement uh, for the Sydney Olympics, so prior to Sydney Olympics, we had a, a, like a mock Olympics, and uh, it was there. I think I was up to my uh, 12th quarter zone being um, injected into my knee to try and get one of my knees functioning. So I was going to be a contender for the Sydney selection. And it was after that where I actually had to withdraw um, through selection process via Sydney Olympics. And uh, I actually took some time out to before I made that decision and I spoke to Rick and he said, you know, go and do what you've got to do. And I actually went down to Hobart for some time out and uh, it was there that uh, I had conversations with the medical team and uh, that's when I decided to withdraw myself from Olympic selection, which is, you know, one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But it was actually when I got home that I found out that my mother had six months to live. So I sort of got a double whammy. So then what followed six months of post-Sydney was um, my mother died. And then, unfortunately, I, um, I probably suffered, I would say it was severe anxiety at the time. So I really had to learn, even though I studied, volunteered, I did all the things that I sort of heard through the grapevine that athletes didn't do throughout the 90s. I was probably one of those athletes that did everything I possibly could to set myself up for transition. But even having all those things, I actually forgot the key ingredient and that's probably what Rick taught me on the hockey field was take responsibility. I didn't actually know what doctor to ring when I got unwell. I didn't know how to apply for a job. I didn't know what conversations I needed to have um, as part of that journey. Um, now, when you leave school, you're expected not to know those things, but 
when shooting close to 30, you, you really should know how to have those conversations and those are the skills that we now try and teach athletes whilst they're, well, when they enter the system because we, there's a real conversation. You know, through the media, they play it out that transition is a real problem. Well, actually, it's not the root of the problem. The root of the problem is when they enter the system and that's where the transition does begin where we have to um, help those athletes maximise their opportunities whilst they're in their sport so when they do transition out um, they're better equipped and that's not just around career and education because you know historically in the 90s it was like yep you're studying tick you don't need to see me anymore um, it's not about that now the Australian Institute of Sport under the guidance of Maddie Clements has set up a framework with athlete wellbeing engagement managers um, within nearly every sport and they're really driving and supporting the athletes um, not just for career and education um, but in personal development connection to community networking and I think it's it's probably a really good time to be an athlete because I think the support system for athletes away from their sport is the best it's ever been look and there's no doubt I mean you touched on the fact that you know the, the accountability side of things and transitioning is really, you know, starts from the, the moment you walk into a professional sporting environment. And I have a personal view that Australian sport really needs to change its culture and embed development and playing, uh, sorry, and planning for life after sport into its very fabric. And whether that's a code, a club, um, you name it, uh, it's really important that athletes are thinking about the long term, even though they're the majority of them are, you know, performing week to week, getting performance analysis, you know, almost daily. I mean, yeah. if we if we just go back one step, because you you mentioned something about your training with uh, with Rick Charlesworth, and mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the weight belt uh, to basically say, you know, you're carrying too much weight, you need to you need to get fitter. I mean, yeah. clearly that sort of uh, that sort of approach probably wouldn't work now, would you say? I mean, obviously, uh, and that's why we're and I were laughing the other day about it because uh, we were saying, imagine if you did now that it's, I don't know what it'd be classified as now, but um, probably abuse, I reckon. Probably abuse, maybe, but for me, I didn't see it that way. Um, I think I saw it as a way that he knew how he brought out the best in uh, the individual and sometimes he brought out the worst in the individual because sometimes we were uncomfortable with his honesty. And for me, uh, I was an athlete that uh, I liked to be told where I went wrong. If I had a coach that told me what I wanted to hear, and, and I did have a coach like that during my time where I would just walk out of his office and then walk into um, Rick's office and, and get the truth. And, yeah, it probably wasn't the ideal way, but in terms of affecting me, I, um, you know, it's something I look back now. At the time, I didn't really feel comfortable about it, but I understood the message to the madness. Um, we wanted to be the best in the world. If you're not out of your comfort zone, um, you will not be the best in the world. I don't know anyone that's been best in business or best in the world um, that hasn't been stretched out of their comfort zone. And as a coach, he had that capability and uh, he knew how, how to draw that out. Now, some of us liked it, some of us didn't. And I mean, I think I'm, I'm assuming that, you know, you guys wouldn't have been the team that you were in without that approach. Absolutely, and uh, I think even 
whether you're a CEO or an entrepreneur, we all know you have to go, especially entrepreneurs, because it's their own business. If if they're not going to a place of discomfort and stress and lack of sleep, I think they've they've probably either won the lotto or they've they've just got potluck or they've got the gift of the gab. But I've I've never met a business person like that. You know, I just just before we move on to a couple of uh, other subjects to do with the whole transition piece, can you just explain the the process that you went through around Sydney 2000? I mean, here you are, you've, you're coming off a gold medal at the previous Olympics. The team is, you know, clearly the favourite for the gold medal in 2000 in your home Olympics. You're one of the key players mm. and then you actually have to make a call to stop playing because, you know, physically you simply can't cope. That must have been incredibly tough when it came to actually putting the team before yourself, which we taught everyone who's ever played team sport, as we know, has been told to do that. But can you explain, you know, what it's like to actually go through it? Yeah, I actually, I think at the time I was pretty calm. Um, I had a really good doctor, um, Andrew, who I still the Adelaide Crows doctor, he sat me down and um, asked me questions around if I'd like to have children, do you want to be able to pick up your children and play with them in the park? So we made sort of um, those examples pretty real. Um, I think they got to a point where it was like we can't, you know, can't keep putting quarters on in your leg and you can't keep asking for it. So there was that side of things. I think probably what made it easier was that I got a gold medal in 96 at the Atlanta Olympics and actually after Atlanta I spent a year in Holland and went and played for a club over there and enjoyed the life and I I really didn't want to come back and I remember getting a call from Rick saying you know it's probably time to come back and start training for Sydney and that was kind of the first time I'd even thought going beyond Atlanta. I had been plagued with injuries from 96 to 2000. Um, I questioned, I'd swapped my stick sponsor and uh, my shoe sponsor. I got a new manager and I look back now and I think, wow, they negotiated, you know, maybe the same money for stick, maybe more money for the um, the clothing and shoe sponsor. And I think the shoes that I wore and the stick I played with were not as good a quality as my first sponsors in both areas. And I think the footwear really did quite a bit of damage to my knees. So I had to reflect on that too, making poor decisions, poor decisions around that, but probably giving my management that ownership and you know the guys I had they're good guys um, I'm still keeping contact with one of them today and I've never had that conversation with them but it was all around well you know they're looking after me um, but in hindsight um, we'll probably you know women's sport we don't get a lot of money we're chasing the dollar so there was that element that I had to reflect on and obviously I had to reflect on my family. I think one of the things that I teach athletes now, the first thing I do when I sit down with them, is I ask them what their values are and who their people are that they have around them to support them. Because I think what made it easier for me to withdraw from Sydney was winning the gold medal and I had some really good values, family, friends, teammates, connection to community were all very much a part of who I was as a person. It would be completely selfish of me to go on one leg. 
Um, I even had a coach say to me, we'd take you on one leg, but it would have been completely selfish and I would say almost inhumane in my language and my values to travel to Sydney because I wanted to get another gold medal and, um, yeah, I just think that would be really unfair. I don't think I could have lived with myself having made that decision on a selfish basis. And it would have been pretty tough too, purely from the perspective of you're probably playing every game thinking, crikey, I could break down at any minute and really, yeah. really cost the team. I mean, yeah. if you if you reflect back on, on your time as a player and notwithstanding the inverted commas, the brutal lessons that were learnt, which ensured that the team became just the most incredible sporting team you could possibly imagine from a success and performance perspective. Mm-hmm. What sort of what I'd call pastoral care was around you guys when you were playing hockey in the in the 90s and early 2000s? Was was it sort of just sort of starting or was it all about sport and you had to look after yourself outside of the sport? So up to 92 under Brian Glencross, there was a sports psychology was kind of the trend within the psychology world. So if you had a sports psychology, but it was all based around performance. Nowadays, we have more clinical psychologists or performance psychologists that actually work with athletes out of the water or off the pitch um, that support my, uh, I always reflect on um, Rick Charlesworth when he came in in 92 and I remember we were in uh, Mar del Plata in Argentina and uh, <laughs> he called me in for a meeting and um, I've had an absolute complete meltdown in front of him. I've, he's asked me one question and I've just absolutely lost the plot. And um, I think it was that time that he came back from Marta Plata to Australia and within uh, three weeks he'd employed a um, psychologist, Corinne Reed, who ended up becoming instrumental. Um, everyone talks about Rick Charlesworth being the greatest coach of all time, but I think he's, part of his success was his team and Corinne Reed was certainly someone that was instrumental in there. We used to call a shrinky. Majority of players, it was still in an era where, oh, you see a shrink, you're a bit loopy. Um, But there was players like myself and others that truly embraced um, the shrink for things uh, off the pitch and and obviously performance on the pitch. And certainly for me, she was probably someone that carried me right through to to 2000 with all the injuries that I had. And uh, there's a lot of emotion that goes with that, with being injured a lot of the time. Well, I mean, now it's just, it's almost a given that, that as far as I can understand, the majority of professional sporting codes, clubs and organisations have sports psychologists um, and also plenty of individual athletes, you know, employ their own um, and, and surround themselves with a the team. Yeah, absolutely. And I know the AFL and the Australian Institute of Sport have uh, what's called the Mental Health Referral Network. So they have psychologists clinical psychologists throughout the country that they can refer athletes and and sometimes family members too which is a really nice thing that they can do to support the athlete when they actually don't want to see the psychologist within the sport sometimes they want it a little bit away from the sport so they get to go and see them away from their club or their um their governing body environment and i think that's a really a really sort of powerful message because mm-hmm. Clearly, there will be there will be people that you know are probably told things under privilege that, that mm. they may feel compelled to tell the club because a you know a player 
an employee might might have an issue with a relationship which is affecting the way they play or substance yeah. abuse or depression um, and, and yeah. I, I can understand why it's really important and, and going back a couple of years myself and and three friends developed a mentoring program called the end game and the whole idea oh, yeah. was for professional sporting people to be mentored by people uh, business leaders and the like that had no relationship with the sport or the club that they mm. played and they embraced it. Uh, it was it was a pilot program in the end. We ran it for about 18 months yeah. and it worked really well because the, the people weren't the employees and they weren't interested necessarily in the sport that these people were, participated or competed in. They were more interested in the actually actual athlete and this sort of leads me to a a question, um, and an, an alumni of the, the Wide Open Road, uh, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell, wrote a book uh, a couple of years ago. The book was titled Life and Death, A Cycling Memoir, and it talks about Bridie's life in and around sport and trying to become an Olympian and succeeding and becoming a world record holder at the one-hour uh, velodrome time trial, which was just extraordinary. But in the book, it actually, you know, she's quoted as saying that, you know, that coaches are paid for performance, and whilst it might be nice to include pastoral care and, and focus on the whole athlete. It's not their job because they are focused and they are paid for performance. I mean, can you sort of explain how you might feel about that? Because that's clearly her experience and I think it's probably changed a little bit over the course of time. But she mentioned that, it, you know, it was, to your point, it was a pretty brutal existence, living, working, training uh, in Europe, cycling professionally. And you know, the coaches just didn't have the time to look after the whole person. And what sort of yeah. what's your view on that? Well, I think there's a few things there. I think the coach has a lot of pressure on just that performance area. I think where we have to get with coaches and and supporting them and getting them to understand. Um, I guess I can speak from my area, which is the athlete and wellbeing in, environment. Um, and I guess for me, the advantage is that I've, you know, been coached by the best. I've been a coach for 10 years in Europe. And one of the things uh, when I entered the Gold Coast Suns environment was I thought prior to starting now, I was like, wow, I'm going to be able to value add to this team and really work with the coaches around saying, hey, I can help you with decision making. I can help you. Um, with your athletes being happier on the field um, because all the science is there now. You've got good well-being away from your sport, then um, you have a greater capacity to perform, whether it's in the water or on the pitch. And, uh, you know, I was recently in the last year working with a a surfer who's on the qualifying series and uh, looks like uh, she'll qualify for the world tour. And when I engaged with her, she probably didn't wasn't doing her hobbies. She wasn't studying um, because she was really keen on a on a um, high level uni degree. Um, and she set about to really change all of that. And uh, she's just had an awesome year surfing. And the thing that I love about surfing is um, the coaches are so invested. Um, and the high-performance team under Kim Crane at surfing, they're really invested, not just in the athlete, but the athlete as a person. They really care about their people. And uh, with the athlete knowing that, it, it makes them more engaging to walk into the office and sign up for that and be part of it, where I felt when I was at the... Um, 
AFL, and look, I wasn't an AFL player, that it was very separate. So you do your your part of the job and we'll do ours and it should be okay. But what coaches need to understand now is that this stuff needs to be embedded into their coaching program because the benefits to them for the performance, it's actually less work for them. And I think we have a case where now we've got a new generation of coaches coming through that are really invested in this. And then we perhaps still have an older generation of coaches that are still going, "Mm, I really like this and I've been told it'll work, so we'll sign up for it, but you just stay over there and I'll stay over here and and that will function really well. Yeah, I mean, Um, it's interesting. not through them... Not liking you as a as a athlete wellbeing engagement manager, it's purely they just don't understand it. So there's a real we're really teaching athletes now about athlete wellbeing engagement, um, connection to community. Um, but what we've probably neglected a little bit is just educating coaches around that. But I think as time goes on, there'll be less of those coaches. But I think there is a way to fast track it, and that's through educating coaches at coaching conferences um, or any opportunity where, where there is an opportunity to do that. You know, the interesting thing in my research for, for this conversation was, you know, your role at Surfing Australia because I'm not a surfer. Uh, there's probably plenty of people who are listening to this that are. It almost seems counterintuitive from the point of view of, you know, surfing to me seems such a, a sort of a free-spirited, you know, you grow up, you, you learn to surf and then, you know, you become Mick Fanning and there's not a lot of kind of athlete development and support wrapped around you and I, I guess that's probably the way it was certainly, you know, in years gone by. I mean, how has is, how is that sort of role come about? And, and clearly Surfing Australia is, is, uh, is really focused on ensuring that the athlete and the whole person are, are kind of in tune with each other rather than just focusing all on surfing, you know, to the detriment of everything else in their life. Yeah, well, I think fortunately, uh, because surfing has now become an Olympic sport, we're off to Tokyo in a year's time. So that's, you know, really awesome for the sport. It's, it's brand new to the surface and there's been an adjustment um, period there. But um, the board um, employed Kim Crane, a couple of years ago because we got the Olympics as high performance director and Kim's obviously she was someone I played hockey with um, back in Brian Glencross's day in the beginning of uh, Rick's era and I think we're really fortunate at surfing to have Kim because I think she's one of the best high performance um, directors I've certainly worked under. She's innovative, she knows what needs to be done and she really knows how to drive a team Um, and we've got a really great happy team at surfing where we're all aligned to to do the same thing and achieve for more importantly the surfers but for each other as a team you know it's interesting interesting what you just said with respect to you know kim's background in in Mm -hmm. elite sport and the fact that in in my sort of experience sports are very slow to to look at other avenues and other ideas from maybe outside the the norm where you know it's always been done this way so we're going to keep doing it and mm. I sort of a great example that I, I have got firsthand is you'd be aware of Drew, Drew Jin um, who was the Olympic role that won I think three gold medals uh, with the awesome foursome and then outside of that that crew he he transitioned from um, coaching rowing to becoming the high performance 
uh, manager of Cricket Tasmania, and he's now the high-performance manager for Cricket Australia. And it was amazing the change in, uh, I suppose, the, the the performance mindset of of our of our team, which which became mm-hmm. you know very evident on the field with respect to their results. But it was just fascinating to see someone from outside the cricketing fraternity come in and maybe with a different approach, uh, but yeah. that experience of of being absolutely the best in the world at something and you know you you know as well as anybody else because you've lived it that you get one chance every four years to peak to win that gold medal and so everything has to be done correctly and it's i guess it's it's very very different when you're competing you know week to week and so i mean what are your thoughts on the the ability for sports and i'm thinking of the traditional sports and afl comes to mind of, of actually looking outside the square and thinking a little bit laterally around the lessons that they can learn because clearly guys like Alistair Clarkson have been very successful and other coaches are now going overseas and they've been going there for a while to, you know, whether it's a Harvard course on on people management, whether it's going to different sporting codes, you know, EPL, uh, NFL, and getting an understanding of the things that they do that can come back and, and help them get that, you know, half a percent or one percent improvement each year, which is going to be the difference between maybe winning a flag or, or finishing down the bottom of the pack. Yeah, and look, AFL is very structured, so you play your game day on the weekend and then they come in Monday and they're reviewed and then Tuesday you start focusing on the weekend and then you're looking at the players that got injured or concussion. So it's very structured. Um, From talking to my counterparts in the player development world when I was in the AFL, there were so many similarities and the trends in the issues seem to be the same across the board. And I think the frustrating for me, uh, probably during that time, is that I'd just come off 10 years of, of being a director of in, in Europe. So I could see some of the things that the coach was going through. And, and sometimes you want to offer a bit of support or advice around that. Now, I was, you know, I came off a hockey pitch. Um, I wasn't an AFL player, I was female. <laughs> Um, Jeez, you're under the pump straight away there. <laughs> yeah, and um, it just, uh, I, I thought it would be something, um, I thought maybe the reason they employed me was because I had all those attributes and they would embrace that. But unfortunately, it wasn't to be and that wasn't how um, the structure was set up. But certainly from my own perspective as a coach, and even looking at the leader I have now with Kim and even um, the support people that I have at the AAS, I find that they're leaders. And uh, I don't think, I don't believe you need to go overseas to find it. It's just you need to be doing it to see what works and you need to be trialling and error different things. I, I feel a little bit lucky because I had the greatest coach um, in his era to teach me some really good stuff about coaching. So, and I remember in, um, I think it was in 2000, I remember Rick stood up and said, any person here that's been under my coaching, um, (laughs) you know, Rick was pretty confident. He said, you are all capable of of coaching um, the national team. And uh, I remember sitting there going, I I really wanted to coach at that point. But I actually look at probably the athletes within that era that are coaching and there's not many. Um, I think there's probably a lot of, lot of them that are keen and enthusiastic. But 
I don't think we've probably got the framework to be supporting um, a lot of coaches in Australia, whether that's a funding issue. But going back to your question, I think it's just like you teach the athletes um, and just like those coaches coach themselves, you've got to take yourself beyond what other people are doing and you've got to think outside the box. I think some coaches go, okay, well, it's working over at that club, so we're going to embrace that. I remember when Richmond won the premiership, you know, and they talked about mindfulness, we'll get a mindfulness coach. I think half the clubs went and got a mindfulness coach because they thought, well, if that was the winning edge, we've got to, we've got to join in that. And credit to those coaches for going and trialling that, but I think there would have been more to it. And I think, you know, we employ these coaches and we pay them a lot of money and, and put a lot of, they're under a lot of, on a daily basis and as coaches um, we don't sleep a lot um, because you're constantly thinking how you can be better but I think what happens is we put these coaches in these positions and then go yep great you're going to do the job but actually you've got to keep developing and keep getting your knowledge and maybe that's why some do go overseas but I think um, and maybe some of them talk within their inner circles as well I know when we live when I um, was director of coaching in um, Geneva, I had the, the Swiss ice hockey coach. We had a Canadian ice hockey coach. Um, we had the football coach, and we would meet once a month for dinner and really chew the fat around coaching and, and what was working and what wasn't working. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating because I think maybe because the, you know, the, the codes are relatively insular here that – People aren't sort of sharing information, um, and you know certainly the the mindfulness um, example we used before with respect to the Richmond Football Club that clearly worked. But I mean, I think it's you know, clearly it's part of a broader framework. And one of the things one of the things that I was you know fascinated by when when uh, reading through the information that uh, you shared with me uh, in preparation for this discussion was that Gary Ablett's quoted as saying that he'd never felt more valued as a person or at the club since Michelle came on board. Can you talk a little about, you know, Gary, we don't want to make this about Gary Ablett, but clearly he's one of the one of the all-time greats of the AFL and you've obviously had a bit to do with him. I and mean, what, what are the sorts of things that you would have done with, with, an, with an individual like Gary and maybe some of the other Gold Coast Suns players which, is, which have helped them um, both on and off the field? Oh, look, I mean, not just Gary, but uh, all the players... Um, for me, uh, yes, I was employed by the Gold Coast Suns, but I was also, for me, it was always uh, person first, not player first. And whether it was Gary Ablett or um, a first-year player or a rookie coming into the system, one of the things um, was to make them feel valued as a person and to make them feel like that they'd come into an environment where they were safe and um, they could particularly come to my area and um, just have a conversation, um, whether that was about family life. I really worked hard at the Gold Coast Suns to um, get to know their families and their people around them, and I thought that connection um, was really valuable whilst I was at the Suns. You know, it's not just the athlete you're taking on, you're taking on their family, and, and the family are entrusting you with their son, um, in this case it was only males, to, um, to help them navigate this brutality of, of world of sport where they are pushed beyond their limits. You know, they're just straight out of school 
and they walk into an environment where it, uh, it's brutal from day one. And do you think that there's a... I imagine that you know it probably takes some time, like with any relationship, to build trust and and all of the types of things that go around uh, getting an individual prepared to open up and and be you know completely transparent with the things that are going on in their lives and sharing things that they may not normally share with others. Mm-hmm. You know, can you you just touch on the fact that you know a lot of these these uh, AFL players and other sports in other sporting codes they're being drafted and become professional athletes overnight from, you know, they're at school one day and then they're suddenly thrust into an AFL system. I mean, I have a personal view that, you know, they shouldn't be uh, professional AFL footballers until they're 20. So a little bit like the, the US model, we're going to go to college first. That's, that's, that seems to be changing a bit now, certainly in the basketball area. If you become a, a superstar basketballer, you probably quit, you know, you skip college or maybe do one year and then just go on and, and be a professional player. But I mean, what are your views on the on the ability for uh, young men and women to move out of an what I'd call a, a relatively uh, simple uh, life at home with mum and dad, and then suddenly because of their sporting prowess, they are thrust into a system that you know can chew them up and spit them out pretty quickly. And I imagine there's a lot of stuff that they need to do with people like yourself, Michelle, to help them cope with all of that as they're going through the system. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, with the AFL, uh, we actually started measuring when those sort of lows would occur, and normally they would come into the system in November, and by March the following year, it was around the Easter time, is probably where they would hit their lowest, where the homesickness really kicks in. You know, they've they've been six months on a preseason, which if you've seen a preseason within an AFL environment, it's pretty tough. Yeah. Um, especially when you've just come from, you know, playing for your club or playing for your, your state. Um, the club I was at, at the Suns, they were really mindful of those players. Um, and I remember the high performance director, you know, wouldn't thrust them into everything. He had a bit of a transition for them coming in. But, you know, they weren't going home to their families each night. They had no connection to community except for the players that they were still getting to know and they're 18 and you know they're coming in with players that have been in the system for eight years and those players of eight years have already established their connections and their relationships within the team so there's many factors um they don't encourage um well they didn't my when i first entered the club encouraged um the athletes to do anything um in the first year um away from the footy because they get they got pretty tired and they also, the AFL Players Association ran in line with AFL Sports Ready like an induction program, which was a really good way for them to sort of get to know each other. But it's, it's, not, uh, it's not really about the football in that first year. It's, it's really, like as you said, they can be chewed up and spat out. I think most of them get two-year contracts. I think um, the Suns and, and other clubs are looking to try and push that to three years so they can, you know, spend three years trying to get them connected to community and, and connected with the club and the players in it. But that's a transition within itself. And that transition from school into a sporting environment, um, I did it myself with hockey. I went from Newcastle, a country town. It was a country town when I was there probably more of a city now, and I went to Perth and uh, I looked back on my time and it, it was at Easter that I hit my lowest point. I felt isolated, I felt alone, 
And that's where we say now to the athlete, it's not just about signing up to do some study. That's not going to save you or give you all the knowledge for when you transition out of the sport. The connection to community, the networking, the people that you can meet. Um, I know when I was playing, one of my rules was when I went on tour, I'd stay on a week with a backpack, whether that was with a couple of hockey mates or just on my own so I could get to understand the culture that I was um, playing in or, or visiting. And what was the sort of... And, what, what, and the what other was... thing was to live with non-hockey people because they gave me a sense of grounding and belonging. I, I felt like I was part of something besides a team, yeah, a but, hockey team. It's... Um, I mean, I think that connection to community is really interesting because, you know, and you've lived it where you've, you've probably spent a significant amount of time in the bubble and you're not really... You know, in the real world, you're in this kind of cocoon because of the focus that you're having. And and I think as it, the conversations I've had with other athletes on the on the wide open road, I think gives me some insight into the fact that it almost feels like, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, it was just focus on sport, sport, sport. You know, if you're going to be better, you've got to train hard, you've got to train longer, you've got to be fitter, all those sorts of things. But it seems to me the pendulum, Michelle, is starting to shift a little bit back the other way where it's quality over quantity and at the same time there is a lot more focus on the whole person as opposed to just the sporting or the athlete. I mean, do you, do you think that's the case in your experience? Oh, certainly it's surfing. We're all about the, you know, world's best surfer, world's best person. So that is one of our – that's our mission. That's what we stand for, Um you know, it's it's all about the person too as well as the surfer. So, you know, and that is actually written on our wall in our high-performance centre. Is, is it happening in other sports? I, I think going back to one of the questions before, I think as long as we've got coaches coming on board to know that this is an area that you can really embed into your coaching. So you really need to align yourself with athlete wellbeing engagement managers, your other, your psychologist. Um, we're really fortunate at surfing. We've got Jason Patchell, our head psychologist, and he drives our athlete wellbeing engagement team. And he really uh, is working really closely with those coaches in embedding this within the program. We do it in our camp structures, and our coaches come to all our, um, our sessions, our workshops, and uh, they're really keen to see how this is aligned with their coaching. And they see the benefit. So once you see the benefit, you'll get the buy-in. But unless you are open to embracing it, then you're obviously not going to see it. And I think some coaches aren't. They go, yep, it's a great idea. We're going to employ. But actually, can you see how it embeds in your program? But that's also our role to help those coaches understand that. You know, a lot of the conversation today has been, you know, coaches have come up a lot. And the thing that really just perplexes me, I guess it's, you know, media interest and the like, but, you know, one thing that surprises me about elite sport, and if I take the AFL example, you know, it almost feels like it's a blood sport for the media to play when coaches are under pressure and they're, you know, they they, they might be the next one on the chopping block, so to speak. And, um, you know, I don't like it because, you know, we're talking about people's livelihoods and, and the fact that, you know, if you think about the AFL system, which, you you know, you've, you're familiar with, 
There's only 18 jobs. Uh, so 18 out of, you know, 26-odd million people, I couldn't even think of what the, the percentage of you getting a job in that environment is. And so who's looking after the coaches? Who's supporting them? Because, you know, they're under an enormous amount of pressure. If the if the club's not performing well, they're the first ones to go. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, can you talk about your experience with, A, being a coach yourself, but more importantly, you know, what are the things that you may have done at the Gold Coast with the coaching staff and with the head coach particularly to – help them because you know if you know i think a number of the coaches you know, i think three or four of the afl coaches this year and no longer have a job and you know it's pretty brutal one day you're the head of everything and the next minute you're out in your street out in the street yeah i think with the sons i think i um i had you know obviously within any organization you have stronger relationships with some than the other i think one of the most consistent things that i did at the sons was i really took on their family members to understand them and and catch up with them to make sure they were getting the support um, as well because they're at home supporting these coaches that are under pressure and and they're getting a lot of, you know, criticism um, from the media. We got a lot of criticism from the media because we weren't having success. Um, But looking inwards, what we were doing inwards, you know, the coaches were working hard. Everyone in all departments were working really hard. However, I do think that AFL is still under a hierarchy system. So at surfing, I feel like it's a bit of a flat pack. There's so much respect for everyone's role. You just do your job and it doesn't matter what position you are. You're as valuable as the next. Where within my experience from being at the football club, um, I felt that uh, someone like the high performance manager once said to me, you've got to know who your hierarchy is. And if you don't get on with the coach and you don't get on with the general manager, you won't have a job. Yeah, that, like, that's, that's, uh, that seems a bit kind of out, okay, outdated, doesn't um, it? So we, immediately I was like, okay, so there are people around here that make the decisions and um, you have to fall in line with that. Unfortunately... That obviously didn't sit well with my values and and me as a person. But I do think by having a culture where you're putting, you know, all that responsibility onto a coach and a general manager of football is just, it is so 1980s. So I think we still have, um, in some sports, a, a long way to go. And I think we're heading in that direction. I mean, it's interesting. I... I the club that's just up the road from the Gold Coast Suns, Brisbane Lions, is you know as we all know, have, over the course of the last three years, have really transformed themselves and are now, you know, sitting second on the ladder and, and playing Richmond next week in a qualifying final up on the up in Brisbane, and their coach Chris Fagan, um, who I who I've had a, a little bit to do with over the years purely because of uh, the fact that we're from Tasmania. I was going to um, say you're a Tasmanian, and uh, and I, it's just so brilliant to see. Um, what uh, what he and not clearly the people around him have done to that football club over the last couple of years. But the interesting thing is, is that there was a really insightful article in the uh, the Herald Sun a couple of weeks ago about talking about Chris and the and the fact that the, the different attributes that a that a fellow like him he brings to the table. He coached, you know, in Tasmania, you know, some years ago. Then went into the AFL system with Melbourne initially, I think, for ten years. Uh, then to Hawthorne for another decade. Um, he was an assistant. Uh, he was a worked in in the football management area, and now as a, I guess, as a middle aged 
late developing coach, he's he's mm. got a whole lot of success because there's a whole range of experiences that he's built up over over time that allows him to have the confidence to delegate where he needs to delegate. So it sounds to me like from the outside looking in, he's almost the prototype for what uh, a club needs with respect to the fact that he's happy to delegate and allow the assistants to get on with their jobs so he can focus maybe on the bigger picture. And yeah. and I think that his, you know, the maturity and the fact that he's been around the block a few times in a few different areas has clearly helped. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, look, you can't buy experience, can you? Um, and he sounds like someone that has really developed himself continually, which is what it's all about. I think when you become complacent and stop learning, it's, um, it, that's when you, you get into a bit of trouble because really you're the entrepreneur or the, you know, you're the club head where the responsibility is, that, you know, you're the one that really, if you get the club success, you're going to get the dollar value, right? Because we all like to see teams win. And he seems to be someone that's been really progressive in that knowledge and developing himself area from an outsider looking in. There's no doubt that we're all in, you know, professional sports all about the W's and the L's and you want more W you want more W's and L's and clearly you're someone who's experienced a lot of lot of wins over the course of your you know, professional hockey career. Just before we wrap up, um, I'm really interested in talking about mental toughness because you mentioned mental toughness in the information that, that, that I've read and clearly uh, you came from an era where you had to be very mentally tough in order to survive mm-hmm. the, the, the training regime which allowed you to be part of an un- unbelievably successful sporting team. But can you describe two things? Firstly, how do you coach and how do you teach someone to be mentally tough? And the second part of that is that mental toughness must be incredibly important as athletes are starting to consider transition to life after sport. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the word tough, I probably wouldn't use that anymore. I think because in the 80s and 90s um, and even in the early 2000s, we were teaching athletes to be tough. Now, what does that mean when, uh, if you said tough when uh, I went to a, a high school of 1,500 kids and uh, to be tough, you ended up, you know, fighting the, the other person in the schoolyard to find out who was the toughest so I think the wording we probably use now is, uh, you know, be strong, okay, be resilient, and in order to be strong and be resilient, to build those, those resilience, you actually have to be able to accept, you know, critical feedback, stretch yourself to those capabilities that I was talking to earlier on and go outside of your comfort zone. And... I think we used to teach toughness just in a physical sense, but now, you know, within the athlete wellbeing engagement area, it's about, okay, there's some athletes that find it really hard to have conversations with coaches or with a sponsor or with an employer. You know, I've said some of my athletes are going to, you're ready for the job interview and they're like, no, it's not going to happen. But with, a bit of education around that and um, teaching them and educating them how it can make them um, a better performed athlete in the water by going through these processes. It's probably putting them in real life situations. But I probably wouldn't, you know, say to an athlete, you know, you've got to toughen up um, because it really just aligns with the physicality of that. 
we're being strong, I guess with females, it's like, okay, lift your shoulders up, you know. Um, I say it to my three girls, you know. You, you just got to do this and you got to, you know, have your superwoman pants on and, and you just got to go out there and do it and um, you're going to feel awesome afterwards. So I think it's more based around that education and certainly um, that's where the psychologist becomes really good with working with the athlete around how they can build those skills in order to be better um, in the water or on the pitch. Um, but certainly those skills out of the water to develop really then can translate into their sport. You know, what? Well, I, I remember playing football in Perth for a couple of years in uh, 1989 and 1990. God, it's a long time ago. And... I remember we weren't allowed to have a drink at one training session. You know what it's like in the middle of in the middle of summer in Perth, a young yeah. boy, a young boy coming from Tassie and not being allowed to have a glass of water during a training session. I think I nearly passed out a few times in that uh, in that situation. So I certainly get that that's a very much a you know this toughness bit and the physicality is all yeah. very, very much a, a sort of an old school type approach. Michelle, yeah. I've I've loved this conversation and we could go on for hours because <laughs> yeah. the, the insights yeah. that you've got are fascinating, not only from the perspective of being an elite athlete and being at the very, very top of your game for an extended period of time, but also the lessons that you are now imparting to, to other athletes, obviously through your coaching overseas, but also through the player development and, and athlete development roles that you now play in Australian sport. Just Just to wrap up, what would you say would be the three lessons you'd like every or the three learnings you'd like every professional athlete to take away as they prepare to transition to life after sport? Uh, well, I would definitely say that dual career is really important. And by having a dual career, I, I mean um, having maximising those opportunities out of the water and that's just not signing up to study or a work experience program. It's really you know, learning those connections to community and networking. So dual career is really important. And I think with all the opportunities that you have as an athlete to make sure that you build your network um, and connections. And I think thirdly, the most important one is is um, to keep your integrity about yourself and be yourself. Don't feel you have to conform to an environment to be successful. Um, There's a quote from Breen Brown, a professor in sociology, and it's vulnerability is the cornerstone to confidence. And uh, I think the more you can be yourself, and I think that was probably why, uh, well, not why Rick was successful. I think Rick was successful because he had 16 or 24 squad members that were all strong individual people with, who are highly skilled as well. So he got a really good stock of what he could build. Um, And if I could say a fourth one, I would always say don't be a critic in the stand, get in the arena and and make it happen Um, because there's a lot of people that sit in grandstands and bitch and whine um, about a player's ability and, and, and scrutinise them. I, I think we've just seen that recently with the Adam Goods um, movie that came out or the documentary. Um, don't be a critic in the stand. Get in the arena and play because, you know, at least you're doing it. And I think anyone that plays in an arena 
um, I'm really happy to have a conversation with, but those that sit as critics in a stand, they're not allowed in my inner circle. <laughs> That's good advice, Michelle Mitchell. Thank you very much. Thanks, Edward. Well, everyone, there you have it. Series one of the Wide Open Road podcast series is now done and dusted. I'd like to thank my guests who have made producing this series so enjoyable. To Hardy Audio, thank you for being an incredible support and helping to edit each interview. You have been sensational. And finally, thank you, my listeners. It has been a pleasure bringing stories of athlete transition to life after sport to you. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe to The Wide Open Road and share it with your friends. Whilst I'm off the air, I'll be working hard on Series 2 of The Wide Open Road, and I look forward to sharing more stories of athlete transition with you in early 2020. Until then, all the best.